Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 49, verse 10. This is the word of God. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Our Father, we're so grateful uh, to come to your word again this morning. We just pray as we continue to worship through the ministry of your word to our hearts. And we just pray your Holy Spirit will come upon us with power to do that, that we might be transformed for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Roger Ebert, the renowned film critic, once said this, Of all the lies movies tell, the deathbed scene might be the most pernicious. A person lays dying in their bed while those who kneel or sit next to them have had a complicated relationship, but everything seems simple now. Just before the darkness descends, they look at each other, and an understanding is reached. The sins of the past are forgiven. One can die in peace, and the other can start to truly live. Where did we get this lie? In all these scenes, the deathbed brings clarity, turning a complicated relationship simple and just in time. End quote. Well, in our passage today, we come to the most famous deathbed scene in the Bible, and it is anything but simple. Unlike the movies, this is real life with all its complexity and messy relationships intact. When Jacob's grandfather Abraham died, it was told this way. Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, and a man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. That's it. The record of Isaac's death is even shorter. In the New Testament, the deaths of most characters like the apostle Paul are not even recorded. Yet here with Jacob, his death spans parts of four chapters with three deathbed scenes because what transpires in these final hours of Jacob's life is so critical to the future of Israel, indeed to the entire storyline of the Bible. I invite you to follow along in your own Bible as we go through this morning and reference, as Paul mentioned, the sermon outline in your bulletin as we go. Our passage begins with an irony. Number one in your outline, the testament of the blind seer, verses one and two. Let's read together. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. We saw last week that Jacob was essentially blind in his old age, yet ironically, he has remarkably clear insight into the future of what will happen in the days to come. Before we dive into what what Jacob has to say to his sons, let's just zoom out for a minute to the big picture of what's happening here in this scene. What a blessing to Jacob 
to, to have all 12 sons with him here around his bed as he dies. Consider, there was a time Jacob had lamented. Joseph is gone, Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin? If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Well, as Spurgeon says, he's not bereaved after all. They're all here, Jacob. Not many fathers have 12 sons, and even fewer have all 12 gathered around them at their death. The heading here in most Bibles in chapter 49 is something like, Jacob blesses his sons. But it might be more accurate to call it the testament of Jacob, because there seem to be as many anti-blessings as there are blessings. Some of this testament contains forecasts or predictions about the future of the tribe. In many cases, Jacob makes character judgments about his sons, and those character judgments influence what will happen to that tribe in the future. Now, you'll notice as we go through that these blessings or anti-blessings are in poetry form. We're going to see a lot of metaphors, and uh, especially with animals. And there are also frequently, uh, there's frequently a play on the Hebrew word that relates to their name. All of these things can make it somewhat difficult at times to interpret exactly what the message is. In many cases, it relates to the way the promised land was later divided after the conquest we read about in the book of Joshua. And in one case, it relates to the future kingdom in Israel and to the future Messiah and possibly even to some things that are still yet future for us as it relates to Jesus' reign. So these are highly significant words that Jacob is speaking in the final hours of his life. You'll see in your outline that there are three units represented by the mother of the sons. First, the sons of Leah. Second, the sons of Jacob's concubines, Zilpah and Bilhah. And then finally, the sons of Rachel, namely Joseph and Benjamin. And the last thing I'll say here just in in this introductory point is just note the contrast between what's happening here and Jacob's father Isaac's blessings that were sort of given behind closed doors, if you will, when Jacob tried to, it was his deceptive scheme to take Esau's blessing. Here with Jacob's sons, there is complete transparency. Everyone is hearing every word about everyone else and their future tribe. And Jacob starts by addressing the sons of Leah. This is number two in your outline. Let's start in verse three. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch Jacob starts out with some positive words for his firstborn, Reuben, in terms of strength, but it turns ugly real fast. Jacob had sexual relations, as we've seen, with Bilhah, the mother of two of his half-brothers. And when Jacob heard about this, what Reuben had done, it doesn't appear from the text that he did anything about it, but he makes up for that in more ways than one here on his deathbed. The Hebrew words here denote a prideful presumption on Reuben's part. He's unstable. He's reckless and destructive. Normally, the firstborn would get the double portion of the blessing. But as we saw last week, that double portion went to Joseph, 
by virtue of Jacob adopting two of Joseph's sons as his own. So Joseph would get twice the inheritance. We see this play out in the book of Joshua, the distribution of the promised land, as Manasseh and Ephraim both get their own land allotments. Reuben has no right to complain about this because of his lust and sexual sin. We see in verse 4 again, you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, then he went up to my couch. These are both euphemisms for his act of sexual perversion. But notice he speaks directly to Reuben, you, 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 then he went up to my couch. He switches to the third person, talks about Reuben to the other sons, almost to distance himself, exposing Reuben's shame to his brothers. Not a good start for the sons of Leah. (laughs) And it doesn't get much better with the next two. Let's look at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." Jacob's second and third born sons are grouped together. Uh, When Jacob says they're brothers, he doesn't just mean they have the same father and mother. He means that they were joined by a common cause, partners in crime, if you will. He's referring to what is called the Dinah incident back in chapter 34. Their sister Dinah was raped by the men of Shechem. And while you have to respect the passion of Simeon and Levi to avenge their sister, their punishment of these men went well beyond any justified response. They tricked the men who wanted to intermarry with them into being circumcised. And then while they were still weak from the procedure, they basically slaughtered everyone. And for Jacob, this was not only an excessive reaction, but it was also very dishonoring to the right of circumcision. Remember, This was God's special sign of his covenant with Jacob's family. This was something very sacred. And as one commentator said, they prostituted the sign of the covenant for their own design. They abused it for something completely divorced from its purpose, namely their own personal vengeance. He says they will be divided and scattered. This refers to their descendants in the promised land. Simeon is ultimately shared the land allotment with Judah, which meant that Simeon would never be a dominant tribe. The Levites were never given an allotment at all. Instead, they were scattered through other, the other tribes in various towns and pasture lands. Well, we're three sons down the list, and not a lot of blessings so far, is there? Well, that's about to change with the fourth son. Please read with me in verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine 
and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vestiture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Quite a change from the anti-blessings of the first three sons, isn't there? And let's remember that Jacob could easily just have started just like he did with the first three. Judah, you led the charge to sell your brother into slavery. You married into the Canaanites. You had sex with a prostitute and put the covenant family credentials as a pledge. You impregnated the wife of your dead son after breaking your promise to take care of her, asking her to be burned before your hypocrisy was exposed. You also will not have preeminence. You also will be scattered in Israel. But that's not what he says, is it? We have seen God's grace in Judah's redemption and transformation, especially when Judah takes responsibility, remember, for Benjamin's life and responsibility for his father's well-being, repenting on behalf of all the brothers, acting like a true unifying leader, a true king. Roughly half of this whole text, roughly half of Jacob's speech, consists of blessings upon Judah and Joseph. These two tribes outshine the others by far in terms of their importance. Judah's Hebrew name means let God be praised. And that Jacob riffs on that in, in that name in verse 8. Your brothers shall praise you. Perhaps you've wondered where the term Jew comes from. Well, this is where it comes from. Judah. Originally, they represented someone from the tribe of Judah. Later, it represented any Israelite living in the territory of Judah. Later still, as we approach the New Testament, the title Jew was just a term for all Israelites as a group, regardless of where they lived. Now, most significantly in Judah's blessing is the frequent allusion to royalty or kingdom. The scepter denotes royal authority. The, the ruler's staff, a, king, a symbol of kingship. Also, lion is a symbol of royalty. His hand on the neck of the enemies symbolizes conquest. Clearly, the royal line will come from Judah. Your father's son shall bow down before you. This is fulfilled when the descendant of Judah, King David, unified Israel as king. Waltke notes the first three sons are passed over for their dangerous leadership. Israel will be protected from the reckless and selfish leadership of Reuben. The tribes will be spared from the cruel, rash leadership of Simeon and Levi. The scepter falls to Judah. The one who, as we saw in that beautiful story in chapter 44, he demonstrated the unification of the 12 sons in repentance and sacrificial leadership as he offers himself for Benjamin. That's the kind of kingdom leadership the Lord wants. This passage is also important for building on the prophecy thread about the Messiah that started way back in Genesis chapter 3. You remember the, the first gospel promise, as it's called, where, where the seed of the woman was prophesied to crush the serpent's head. Later, that, that seed was further refined to be a, a descendant of Shem, Noah's son, then further refined to come through Abraham, then through Isaac, then through Jacob, now through Judah. With further detail here 
that his, this seed would be a king. This royal seed is later further refined in God's covenant with Abraham of Judah. I'm sorry, with, with David of Judah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, to be fulfilled as the Messiah king, the, the promised son of David. The obedience of all peoples, verse 10, is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ when he will consummate his kingdom at the end of the age and every knee shall bow. Now, the second part of verse 10 is, is very difficult in terms of translation. It reads in the ESV, until tribute comes to him. The Hebrew word here is Shiloh. It's possible this refers to an event regarding Shiloh, the place, but there's not really any event that would fit this kind of significance. So there's similar wording, however, in Ezekiel 21 when the prophet looks forward to the Messiah and says, until he comes, the one to whom judgment belongs. So most scholars see something of that thread here. Judah, in other words, Judah will always have a ruler until the one comes to whom all tribute, all royal authority and judgment belong. So it has to do, of course, with the greater descendant of Judah, son of David, namely the Messiah. In verses 11 and 12, we see images of abundance, which correspond to the the period of Messiah's reign that's teased out in the Old Testament. If you bring a donkey to eat off the vine, it's because the grapes are so plentiful. When wine is as abundant as water, you can even wash your clothes in wine, as it says. The wine's flowing abundantly. The times are really good. This is looking ahead to the golden age of the coming king. Throughout the Old Testament, you see images of bumper crops, including grapes, as this golden age of Messiah. There's real blessing that comes when Messiah reigns. And he's beautiful, verse 12. The descriptions of eyes and teeth are marks of beauty. Isaiah 33, 17, one of my favorite passages. Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty, and they will see a land that stretches afar. So this time of blessing begins with the first coming of Christ and is consummated in his millennial reign, ultimately in the eternal kingdom. So Judah is certainly blessed, isn't he? And you can understand why the Jews were so looking forward to this king from Judah, this son of David, as he would later come to be called. Let's close off with the sons of Leah with her lesser-known boys. First, let's look at verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. For the rest of the 12 sons, with the exception of Joseph, Jacob's blessings do not really reference the virtues or vices of the, of the particular patriarch. We do not see as much character assessment. For Zebulun, this seems like a reference, as it is in some cases here, to the tribe's land allotment in the promised land. But the problem is his, por- his, la- his portion is actually landlocked. It's not on a shore. So either this refers to a future time, when their territory did extend to the sea, or more likely, this refers to the fact that Zebulun was on a trade route from the sea. So include a lot of merchants that were coming from the sea that were well-situated for trade. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. 
This is actually the only time the sons are listed out of order in terms of their age, because Issachar is actually older than Zebulun. But Jacob indicates that his descendants will live in a good part of the land, and they will have some wisdom and prosperity. Remember, King David had wise counselors later, men of Issachar, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Unfortunately, there were those in this tribe who were lazy, as was often the case, and and subjugated themselves to foreign invaders. They failed to drive the Canaanites out and paid the consequences. So this ends Jacob's testament for the six sons of Leah. Next, number three in your outline, the sons of Zilpah and Bilhah. These were the servants of Leah and Rachel, respectively. And the first is Dan. Look at verse 16 with me. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. Now, this goes for all four sons of the concubines, but he makes the point here at the beginning with Dan that they are one of the tribes of Israel. Okay? Just because they're not born to his wives Leah or Rachel, they're nevertheless, each one of them, a legitimate tribe. The Hebrew word Dan means to judge, so this is a a play on his name, the judging one will judge. Okay, interestingly, one of the most famous of the judges was Samson, who was from the tribe of Dan. Though a small tribe, they packed a punch like a viper. This certainly fits the Samson story, doesn't it? But a snake or serpent is not a positive image reminiscent of the serpent in the Garden of Eden, which led Adam and Eve astray. The tribe of Dan, unfortunately, played a leading role when Israel went astray into idolatry. And very interestingly, when the tribes are listed in Revelation, chapter 7, Dan's not even mentioned. So significant was their apostasy, it would seem. Now, Before we go on to the next son, look closely with me at verse 18. There's an interlude of prayer from Jacob. Verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. (laughs) Jacob interrupts his blessings and anti-blessings of his sons with an urgent prayer. He considers so many negative characteristics, so much future opposition and hostility against these tribes. He takes a break and cries out to God, Lord, save us. Only by God's intervention is there any hope. So concerned is he for his descendants. He knows without divine deliverance, they're doomed. Boyce paraphrases Jacob this way. In spite of what I'm prophesying, I want to say again that my hope of deliverance is in the Lord and his future work. Today we might say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Then after this prayer of salvation, Jacob continues. Look, at, look with me in verse 19. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Here's another play on the Hebrew name. The name Gad means troop, like the band of raiders. This is appropriate because Gad's future land allotment was in a vulnerable area that needed to be defended east of the Jordan. Verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Asher's land allotment was on the coast with fertile soil, This tribe is going to be prosperous. Verse 21. Naphtali is a dolet loose that bears beautiful fawns. 
The bearing of fawns likely indicate how populous this tribe was, having many descendants. A doe let loose may refer to the fact that there was no northern boundary for their land allotment, so they were free to roam. So, brief, fairly brief words about the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, but remember, they are, each one of them, a tribe of Israel. Finally, we come to number four in your outline, the sons of Rachel. Let's read from verse 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches shall run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of that Deep of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessing of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. So Joseph gets the longest blessing. In fact, it's the only time the word blessing is actually used, and it's used six times. But first, there's likely some biography here. Note in, in our story, as we've covered the last couple of months, in verse 23 and 24, archers have attacked him, shot at him, harassed him severely. Well, this has been true for Joseph on many fronts, hasn't it? His brothers, of course, selling him into slavery. Potiphar's wife falsely accusing him. Potiphar himself throwing him into prison with no trial. Yet Joseph was steady, verse 24. His his bow remained unmoved. As Worsby says, he didn't shoot back because he was strengthened by then five back-to-back references to God. The mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of his father, the almighty. Gordon Wenham says this rapid sequence of God's names comes at us like the finale of a fireworks display. And there's one thing that I sort of struck by as I studied this, which I've never really thought about before. These titles, of course, are very familiar to us, most of them, because they're peppered throughout the scriptures. You know, the Psalms, uh, certainly throughout the prophets. We frequently see the mighty one of Jacob and the rock of Israel. I mean, they just exude strength and power. But unlike in those other places, in this case, Jacob is the one speaking about the mighty one of Jacob. It's like saying the mighty one of me, the rock for me. In other words, he says to his sons, this is my God. The only reason I'm here, the only reason any of us are here is him. Jacob is helpless. The God of Jacob is mighty. Israel is weak, but God is my rock. This isn't just the God of my grandfather Abraham or the God of my father Isaac. This is my God. And Joseph, this is your God. And as he explained to Joseph last week, he has been your shepherd, and he will continue to lead you and strengthen you. The Almighty will bless you. There's another play on a Hebrew name here. Look look at verse 22. There's a double reference to fruitfulness. Well, the name Ephraim, Joseph's son, means doubly fruitful. Remember in the last chapter, Ephraim and Manasseh were were two sons of Joseph that were formally adopted by Israel. 
as, tri- as tribes, as, as sons. And this blessing of Joseph is a blessing for them. Ephraim would become the most fruitful and populous tribe in Israel. And isn't it ironic that Rachel struggled in her barrenness? She cried out to the Lord, please give me children. Ultimately, the most fruitful tribe, Ephraim, comes out of this cry of the Lord from a barren woman. And his branches, verse 22, shall run over the wall, illustrating the expansion of Joseph's land in Joshua 17. So again, Joseph and Judah combined for half of the entire blessing of the chapter, which is interesting because when you think about it, these are the two dominant tribes later when the kingdom is divided. Remember, Judah is the southern tribe, and Ephraim becomes synonymous in the prophets with the northern tribe of Israel. So Bruce Waltke, very insightful here as usual. Think about the fruitfulness in Joseph's blessing here. And the royal dominion in Judah's blessing. Okay, back in Genesis 1, the very beginning, we see the creation mandate to Adam and Eve. The commission to do what? Be fruitful and exercise dominion. Now here at the end of Genesis, this mandate comes focused on the chosen nation. In particular, on Joseph and Judah. Be fruitful, Joseph. Exercise dominion, Judah both of which God is doing through them, tying right back to the creation mandate in the first part of Genesis. I think that is fascinating. Now, last but not least, verse 27, let's look at that. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at the evening dividing the spoil. Jacob is literally in his final hours, yet he will pronounce the testament on every last son. I love what Spurgeon said. Jacob was immortal until his work was done. The metaphors here indicate Benjamin is a fighter, dividing from from a negative perspective. There's some NC-17 rated stories in the book of Genesis, or the the book of Judges, where uh, the depravity of Israel was at a nadir point, and a woman was literally cut into pieces. There's such an outrage uh, against Benjamin that the tribe was left almost extinct. But after the sinful purging, the tribe began to be reestablished. And from a more positive perspective of the sort of fighter motif, consider the military leadership of Saul and Jonathan, uh, who were from Benjamin. Great fighters in the early monarchy. And of course, Saul, also called Paul in the New Testament, was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Let's read the conclusion, number five in your outline. As Israel dies, Israel is born. Verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I'm to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in that cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with a field from Ephron Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field that and that cave that is in it were brought, bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last 
and was gathered to his people. Here at the end of the chapter, Jacob reiterates his instructions to Joseph, which we looked at last week, uh, returning his body to that land, looking forward to with anticipation to inheriting that promised land permanently. Egypt's been a blessing, as we talked about, but a sojourn, a detour. We belong in Canaan, and I want you to bring my body there to firmly remind you that God's promises will be fulfilled. And Jacob breathed his last and was gathered to his people, which means he was reunited with his ancestors of the promise in the afterlife. This chapter has bookends of irony, doesn't it? We started with the blind seer. Now consider as Israel dies, Israel is born. We have here the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel launching from this text. The nation of Israel is a small embryo. When I was a teenager, our family went on a camping trip to Itasca State Park in north central Minnesota. Its claim to fame is is that it's the source of the Mississippi River. All the way downstream, of course, it feeds into the Gulf of Mexico, the Mississippi Delta, which is almost 5,000 square miles at that location. But way back at its source, it's just a little stream flowing out of Lake Itasca, and you can literally walk across the Mississippi River without getting your feet wet, stepping on the rocks in this tiny stream. And as you're walking over this trickling water, it's surreal to, to consider this river is the, ultimately the mighty Mississippi, I mean, culminating in three million acres at its widest points on the Gulf. That's sort of what this scene in our passage is today to the nation of Israel. When you consider the wilderness wanderings later, the conquests of the promised land in the days of Joshua, the legendary battles of King David and Jonathan with the Philistines, Solomon's grand kingdom, Elijah and the kings of Israel, the prophets and the exile, then the Jews in Palestine, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, hundreds of millions of Jews throughout history. It's surreal to consider. It all comes from these 12 sons gathered around their father's bed. Such a small group, you can sort of walk across the stones, if you will. But what we see here as a trickling stream is the beginning of God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. The mighty river of descendants will become like sands on the seashore and of massive importance on the world scene and of even greater importance in terms of God's plan for redemption of mankind. So, With the death of Israel, the man, we see the birth of Israel, the nation. I'd like to spend the rest of our time on three principles I think we can draw from our passage that have application for the way we think about God, the way we think about our lives as it relates to him, the way we live our lives today. This is number six in your outline, letter A, the sins of the fathers. The case, in the case of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, their sins significantly impact future generations. Reuben, in a moment of pride and pleasure, with absolutely devastating consequences. He had first place among his brothers, the cherished firstborn position, the double inheritance squandered, affecting his descendants forever. 
450 years later, when Moses spoke about the tribes in Deuteronomy 33, he said this, let Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. Because apparently that was a danger. The tribe was so weak and anemic, you might think it could fizzle out. So they remained on the east side of the Jordan after the land settlement. One of the first tribes judged, as we read in 2 Kings. In those days, the Lord began to reduce the size of Israel. When we consider Reuben's lust and the violent anger of Simeon and Levi, severe consequences for their descendants. Things haven't changed that much, have they? When you consider the sins by men today and the devastating impact on their children and grandchildren, sexual immorality and uncontrolled outrage have to be near the top of the list, don't they? What a wake of destruction. Your decisions matter, not just to you, but to those who come after you. We have a culture today completely divorced from this reality. Everything's extreme autonomy. You be you. I want to be true to me alone. I alone choose my path. This radical individualism was unheard of in centuries past. And in many cultures today, unthinkable. But prevalent in our culture, isn't it? I determine what's best for me. Do what feels good to me. I'm the only one affected. What a lie. How selfish and destructive and naive. So let's examine ourselves. If you have a lust or anger problem or any other sin, never believe the lie you're the only one that will be affected. Your action or lack of action has devastating consequences that reach far beyond you. One scholar says, you cannot escape this law. Sin is not private. Sin is far-reaching. It never is just your own business. Look at Adam and Eve, the prototype of this very principle. They make a foolish decision, and literally, the entire human race is devastated. They saw, they took, and they ate. And for the chapters that follow, we read that oft-repeated phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died, all because of sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the entire history of humanity can be summarized by two events. What happened because of Adam and what happened and will happen because of Jesus Christ, which leads us to our second point, amazing grace. Letter B. As a result of his sin, Levi scattered in Israel. They do not have their own land but are dispersed throughout. But God turns that anti-blessing into a blessing. Remember, the Levites become God's priests scattered throughout the land. God sets them apart as his own possession to intercede for the people. So as a result of the scattering, everyone has access. What started as a curse turned into a huge blessing for the nation. Amazing grace. Consider Judah. Complete disregard for the Abrahamic covenant and the special place that his family had in God's plan intermarries with the Canaanites, behaves like them, completely fails as a father. Sons are wicked. Certainly fails as a father-in-law in unspeakable ways. Sleeps with a prostitute, careless with his special identity as Jacob's 
son, squandering his membership in this special covenant family, tries to get the woman executed in an act of hypocrisy that defies the imagination. Yet Jacob says, so here's your lot, Judah. Kings will come from you. Indeed, the Messiah will come from you. How is this possible? As Waltke says, it is utterly astounding that Judah has his name written on the gates of heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation 21. How is this possible? Amazing grace, that's how. As Luke tells us in Acts, even repentance is a gift granted by God. Even Judah's recognition of his sin and his repentance, his offer of self-sacrifice for Benjamin, was by God's grace to him. Judah stands as a witness to this grace. Even the worst of sinners can enter heaven by God's amazing grace. Finally, let her see. The king has come. The prophecy about Judah and his tribe are rich with anticipation of the Messiah. This promise is reaffirmed to the Jews, as we said in 2 Samuel 7, where the king of David, of Judah, was promised a descendant who would reign forever as king. From that point on, the Jews would be anticipating this promised son of David as in the, the blessed age of abundance he would usher in. There's so many facets to this, but I'm just going to concentrate on one. One thing that marks the coming of the Messiah, this golden age of his reign, is what we see in verse 11 of our text. The fruitful vineyard and the, the superabundance of wine well, what does Jesus do at his very first sign of his true identity? In John chapter 2, at the wedding at Cana, he performs his first miracle in the gospel. What does he do? Turns water into wine, a super abundance of wine flowing as freely as water. Where had they seen that? Genesis 49. And not just an overabundance of wine, but people were stunned by the quality of the wine. An exclamation point by Jesus. His first sign showing in John who he was, and he was in fact this Messiah king of Judah they had been anticipating. He was this promised son of David that would inaugurate the kingdom of God, the time of healing and restoration and abundance to undo the curse of Satan's power and disease and death, which he went on to demonstrate in his exorcisms, and his miracles, healings, and other signs. Ultimately, victory through his death and resurrection. Now, for most of us Gentiles, the title Son of David may not be the first identifier we think of when we think of Jesus. But I hope you can see from our reflection today on this anticipation why the Jews found the title Son of David so precious. Because with his arrival would come so many promises fulfilled. Let me close by making this personal. This is a true story about a man named Bartimaeus. And it's found in Mark chapter 10, where we read this. And they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, <clears throat> I love this story, a blind beggar, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard 
that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, son of David, this promised one from the tribe of Judah, the king, the one who would bring healing and well-being and peace and salvation. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man and said, Take heart, get up. He's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up. And came to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is remarkable. Bartimaeus believed this was the promised one. This promised one of Judah, this son of David. And he cried out. People told him to be quiet, didn't matter. He wanted Jesus. And Jesus says his faith healed him. And this isn't just physical healing, it's spiritual. Because when he recovered his sight, he followed him as his disciple. Now his life was all about Jesus, his Messiah, his King, his Lord. All these people in the great crowd. But Jesus stopped and came to one man personally. He heard his cry. He knew his need, his pain. He met him right there. And he does the same thing today. This is the significance of Jacob's words to Judah 4,000 years ago. They find fulfillment in the life, death, resurrection and future reign of Jesus Christ. Its scope is so grand, it reaches the crowds, it reaches all people groups in the world. Yet at the same time, its scope is so narrow, it comes directly to you. This Lion of Judah, this Son of David, he loves you. He will be your Savior, personally. He knows your needs, your pain. He'll meet you right there. You just need to call out to him. He's a generous king and a merciful savior. Be healed, my friend, of your blindness, that your eyes may be opened to the king in his beauty, his majesty. This king has come. Call out to this promised king from Judah that you might be saved and follow him. Please stand with me as we close. Our Father, we do thank you that the King has come in the Lord Jesus Christ, that all these prophecies are yes in him, and we long for his return. For those here who have not partaken of these promises, namely the spiritual healing, the opening of their eyes, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, adoption into your family, may they turn to you today, that they might be saved. For Jesus' sake, amen.
they're dismissed.